Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, spyware author mSpy has been hacked, and this attack is particularly egregious. We'll explain why. What's wrong with PCAP and the death of RSA? It's been greatly exaggerated. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 216 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode live on May 21st, 2015. This episode's brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. Go check that out. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, Alan. And once again, I'm checking in on your Tetris. Uh, what do you call that back there? It's not like a display. Just a it's a lamp. Yeah, it's a Tetris lamp. And did it change configuration since I've seen you just a few minutes ago? <laughs> well, yes. It's a different week, right? <laughs> of course. We didn't just finish a show like no, six minutes no, ago. No, no, this of course is, not. This is a week later. Yes, yes, of we course. We changed our shirts and everything. Right, right, of course. Um, hey, Alan. Um, this first story you picked for uh, the episode this week, I was ready to get all defensive. I was like, don't you dare dog on my, keep, my PCAP. PCAP is my bro, and it has helped me out through some tough times. Then I started reading this article you found, and it's actually more like a blog post, and it's titled, yep. What's Wrong with PCAP Filters? And he actually makes a pretty compelling case. And I never really thought yeah, of it as, as some really does. interesting cases. And it's just like, why is this not working? Yeah, so <laughs> for those of us who have need, need used this tool before, I think you will feel this pain. Break it down for us, Alan. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, starting at the beginning, what is PCAP? PCAP is a, a library for analyzing packet captures. That's <laughs> the PCAP. <clears throat> so PCAP filter is basically a language you use to uh, to write filters for packet captures so that you can, um, you know, decide which packets you're actually interested in capturing. Right, right, right. Because, uh, you know. I'm playing, uh, I'm playing your, a little your video. Your typical network is going to have, you know, a lot of traffic going across it. And you're going to want, you know, only a small it. fraction of that is actually stuff you care about. And we have linked in the show notes a keynote that really breaks down uh, what PCAP is, the how it's used. Of it, why yep. it was invented, yep. and so on. Yeah. Face and exchange uh, ideas. So this, oh, sorry, I didn't. No, hear no, I just, I just showing we have. So that'll be in the show notes. People want like a full background, so you don't, you don't have to give them the yeah. whole detail if you don't want. Right. Uh, so this post is looking at some of the classic problems or, or hidden gotchas with PCAP filtering. Okay. And you know why these deficiencies actually exist, and you know when you understand why they're there, you understand why they're there. You're like, can't somebody fix it though? Right. Yeah. Now that we know about uh, it, <laughs> and you know, understand why we continue to use them despite of these flaws. Great. Uh, you know, and just like you wrote here, just to be clear, uh, libpcap is amazing, and we love it, uh, <laughs> but it's you know, it really isn't our fault that it ends up using something different. Yeah. Every uh, tool has its disadvantages as well. Yeah. So. Uh, PCAP is actually just the user mode implementation of BPF, which is the Berkeley Packet Filter, uh, which is a Unix interface, uh, most, uh, most often found on uh, FreeBSD, but is available everywhere, uh, that allows an application to read and write raw packets for the network card. Normally, you know, uh, being a user in user space, all you would be able to get is the actual connection at the end after the kernels accepted it and dealt with the packet and so on. But uh, BPF was a way to actually go down to the network card and say, hey, give me those packets before you do anything to them. Uh, and it also allows you to put the NIC in promiscuous mode, which makes the NIC ignore its normal rule of 
only uh, picking up packets off the wire that are actually addressed to right. that person, the, to that Nick's MAC address. Mm-hmm. In promiscuous mode, you can see all the traffic on the yeah. network. Yeah, that's that's a key thing right there. Which made an even bigger difference before we had switches that were smart about not to send traffic to your switchboard if it wasn't addressed to you. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, so in addition to providing the interface to let you uh, read the raw packets and get them into an application like TCP dump, uh, it also has the filtering language built into it so that you can decide which packets you want to bother reading, right? Because, you know, a lot of work goes into copying these packets off the network and, and shoving them up into your application and processing them. So if you can reduce the number that actually are making it up in there, then you can get a lot more done, right? Way less noise, too. Yeah. So, for example, running Wireshark on Windows, if you put the uh, BPF, the, the filter rule, in the capture side of it, it only the packets that match will actually end up in your Wireshark window. If you just apply the filter using the box after you start Wireshark, your all the packets are still being captured, and Wireshark has to look at each one. And every time you change the filter, it has to reapply right. it across the whole list. Yeah, yeah. And it can end up making it take a lot longer. But you know, if you do too specific of a rule while you're capturing it, you can't go back and capture packets you didn't accept through the filter before. So there's kind of the trade-off between the user side and the NIC side. Uh, but anyway, so looking at some of the examples. Uh, if you're just writing the regular PCAP filter, you know, for TCP dump while you're running it on your command line, mm-hmm. if you do the rule VLAN 11 and TCP, then that will do what you expect. It matches all TCP traffic that's traveling over VLAN 11. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Or if you match VLAN and TCP, then uh, the filter will give you all traffic that's in any VLAN and uh, is TCP. However... If you do the opposite, it won't do what you expect. If you say TCP and VLAN, it won't work. So that's like a language uh, thing, isn't it? That's like a that's yeah. just a weird parsing of the language. Basically, when you do the VLAN keyword, it looks for the VLAN tag and then moves the pointer forward mm. so that then when you're looking for TCP, you're not looking at the regular offset in the packet, but the offset where it would be now that we know there's a VLAN header first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yeah, the problem is that the VLAN directory actually affects the remaining expression, but not the previously compiled parts. So the TCP and has already been dealt with by the time we apply the VLAN filter. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, um, you know, the packet won't be seen as TCP if it is a VLAN because the VLAN header will push the TCP header further back. Mm-hmm. And so nothing will match uh, both of those rules at the same time anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just get nothing. <laughs> Also, if you use like uh, the ellipses, round brackets in your rules, uh, if you do, you know, bracket VLAN and TCP bracket Bracket, or TCP, that won't work either because as soon as you apply the VLAN keyword and it advances that pointer, it's advanced forever now. And so you're basically just doing VLAN and TCP or TCP, which, I mean, is going to be the same as the previous one. Uh, But... It says, wait, it gets worse. If you do VLAN 11 or VLAN 12, it won't match packets in VLAN 11 or VLAN 12 like you would expect. It'll match packets in VLAN 11 or packets in any VLAN that are then tagged a second time as being in VLAN 12. Because it'll advance the header when it does the check for 11, and so when it does the check for 12, it'll advance the header a second time. So it'll only match if you're actually a packet on VLAN 12, encapsulated in some other VLAN first. 
and there's you know there's no way in the regular filter language to solve that. Hmm. So the hack is you have to explicitly say, you know, where the uh, Ethernet header at fourteen uh, colon two matches this, or at fourteen colon two matches this. You know, which is quite a bit different. Yeah. How you know? And the thing is, is I don't know how I would have caught like, I don't know how I would know that going into this. Like, how yeah, do I know that that's going to trip me up? Because it's just how I'm the way I'm phrasing the 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 filter. Yeah, like it, it says here, from reading the man page too generously, one might think that the uh, change in the lookup offset is scoped just to be in the the parenthesized sub expression. But it's not. <laughs> Instead, in reality, you end up shifting twice. And yeah, so other than you know the fact that some of these are documented, you wouldn't know that it wasn't yeah. working the way you thought. It's interesting when a tool is created, and then when the developer makes that tool, they have to come up with a language for you to interface with it. And that's always going to be a little ambiguous. There's always going to be room for mistake there. But then at the same time, if you have something like PCAP, which fundamentally monitoring and capturing network traffic is a major task because there's just so much going on on a busy network that you have to build in some sort of filtering uh, system to get anything useful out of it at all but literally I, and that filtering system has to be able to filter not just every possible protocol there is now yeah but also the ones we might invent right yeah and it so it's trying to be as generic as possible and if you just scroll down a little bit and look at some of these uh, examples it's got like <laughs> Some like ten line ones, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. trying to just do it's you know, and of course unrealistic for a mobile operator who just has one mobile address pool. And so talking about that whole site, it's just like, wow, this looks like some kind of observed list lisp joke yeah. from the seventies. <laughs> and then he's got another one here that has a scroll bar because it's so long. Yeah, I saw that, that one's great. <laughs> you know, and uh, he's I, like, does that eight game monstrosity even work? We 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 critique because we care, right? Like uh, exactly. I've had these kinds of I've had these kind of tools totally save the day. What do you do on a network? Say you run just just one floor of a building, and all of a sudden you have a, an IP conflict, and something has been set with a static address that your DHCP server is handing out, and you have to go find the machine that has the static address. What are you going to do? How do you track that down? What's your fastest yeah, way? You need a TCP dump, get the MAC address, yep. go to the switch, yep. find out which port the switch associates those packets with. Then go upstream, capture some more, find out the switch on the other side, and mm -hmm. trace it all the way back to the machine. And yeah, I, we had a war story about a rogue DHCP yes, server. I remember, one time. I remember somebody's yep. laptop had Windows XP <laughs> internet connection sharing, yep. and it was plugged in in a conference room or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've, he's got another one on here about uh, host names. So when you see a word you don't recognize in the command line, it will try to resolve it as a host name. Well, this leads to the interesting ones where you do something like host 10.0.0.1 and port 80. But you've got the space before the and. And so now you're looking for a host called 10.0.0.1 and, which isn't going to resolve. And then port 80 is just kind of left hanging there without the and. And it's like, Bruh. Yeah, I was, I was thinking back to like, uh, the, the tools like this that are, are useful for just monitoring and logging. Um, and and yep. tools like Ntop, which are built around using this language to grab out the, the useful bits. <laughs> I love this near the end. He's like, so given the above whining, why am I still writing PCAP filters in pretty much every networking program I write? <laughs> why not just find some other filtering language or write your own or yeah, link right. to a 
jittered script language and, and write the packet filter in that. It's, well, PCAP has a few big advantages. It runs in the kernel. It's safe. It's easy to use It has for most simple cases. And it's available everywhere. Mm-hmm. Very true. It's a, it's a great program. And uh, we'll have that video if you guys want to. Yeah. So if you want to write code in the kernel for your filtering, it has to be through BPF. And PCAP is the best way I know to generate good BPF code. And you linked to a BPF internals uh, post here. What's this? By Brandon yeah, Gregg. Yeah, uh, so that one uh, talks, uh, well, there's an internal one that's not by Brandon Gregg, and then okay. there's a second one about from Brandon Gregg. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so there's uh, more talk about what BPF is and how it works, uh, and then there's some uh, two posts about eBPF, uh, which is basically uh, a new way to do it where you would actually use like LLVM to compile uh, code down into a BPF expression. Huh. Huh. So there's some interesting stuff. So yeah, uh, I have uh, this one that's the internals of BPF, which is uh, written just the other day and, and kind of based on Brendan Gregg's post. And Brendan Gregg's post is why we need eBPF and talking about his first attempts to play with the new versions and, and using it because uh, he's doing a lot of network analysis and stuff at Netflix. And then there's, I also have here the slides uh, from a university here in Canada where somebody's actually working on uh, faster trace filters and so on using uh, eBPF and just-in-time compilation. Hmm. There you go. That's cool. So I love the all diagrams. the information you ever wanted to know about what's currently happening uh, with packet filtering. One of our favorite little tools that doesn't get enough attention from time to time. Exactly. All right, Alan, cool. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, nope, that's it for now. Good catch and a good way to vocalize niggling complaints that I think a lot of us have run into, but still. Right, but it's just, yeah, I think it's, uh, most people have never had to write more than like, you know, very, very light expressions in PCAP and digging into it more, uh, they'll right. see how much power there is and yeah. where there's and some Especially if you're writing tools around still. PCAP, like that guy is, where he's running yep. into that kind of stuff because he's, he's building that stuff. Hey, I want to mention mm -hmm. IX Systems right here because it's kind of perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. These guys are the experts on anything you need what's going to rely on rock-solid open-source technology, software, and the best hardware. They build their systems around these Intel Xeon processors, and they really do the best systems out there. Alan, how long have you been buying from IX Systems now? Do you know how long? Oh, three, four years? Yeah. Like yeah, I think, I think I'm two years. I, I, I mostly just wish it had been a lot longer. I know. That's what I was going to say. It's like, I think I'm about two years, I think, maybe I'm almost three years, and I look back at all of the different vendors and all of the different companies I've bought hardware through, and in all of that time, it has never been as smooth or trouble-free as IX. And I'll tell you something else, too. I've never felt like I've had the one-on-one -on -one experience where they were working with me as a partner and less as a, hey, let me just sell you something type setup. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there to check them out to see what I'm talking about. They do things differently than probably every other hardware vendor you've worked with. And if you need some reliable hardware for your infrastructure, you know, IX Systems is definitely something you should check out. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. You can get a free purchase consultation. You'll get an accurate quote. You're going to get an on-time delivery. They're going to do battle-tested, burned-in hardware before they ship it to you, so you're not going to have a big time sink with something showing up that doesn't work. And then after it's shipped, they still have a white-glove post-sales process as well. And uh, check out yeah, IX Systems. You know, uh, I've, I've dealt with that now because uh, I had a failed hard drive at a server in a data center. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that they shipped the old drive, uh, or they shipped a new drive without waiting for you to send the old drive so first. Nice. In fact, they include the return shipping label uh, so if nice. you're in the states and so on. And they, 
you know, uh, it was very easy to talk to them, create the ticket, get the information. They had they supported the fact that I needed not to ship it the new drive to my address, but to a data center where it had to be marked specially so it would get installed in the right machine and put to the right person and so on. Uh, you know, they helped me deal with the fact that you know it was the first time I dealt with uh, two drives trying to fail at the same time mm-hmm. in my in my ZFS pool. <laughs> Mm-hmm. When I only had one level of redundancy, mm. so it was RAID Z one, but two drives were trying to die on me. Oh, jeez! But uh, we managed to uh, save the pool without any troubles. That's great, Alan. And um, uh, yeah, it was just a very good experience that let me. Uh, when you're very in that happy. spot, when you're doing what you're going through right there, it's nice to have IX systems at your back because that can be such a time sink that can be super stressful that's the kind of thing you just don't really ever budget time for so to have somebody that can really help you get through that as fast as possible and back up on your feet that's worth almost all the money in the world right there when you're in a bad situation and that's why a lot yeah. of ix systems clients like disney world tivo wb sony cox communications aerospace uh the navy lockheed martin u.s army adobe hitachi the FreeBSD foundation uh, Palo Alto Networks, they all are iX Systems customers, hundreds and hundreds of others. And check out iX Systems on Twitter, twitter.com slash iX Systems. They're going to be at BSD Can and Self soon, and they'll be tweeting about this, their uh, their adventures while they're at the conferences. Yeah, and uh, DCIG Magazine uh, posted their scoring recently, and uh, on top of giving the TrueNAS, you know, great scores for software and so on, mm-hmm. uh, but the the trend is every time they've ever rated anything from IX, the hardware always gets the best in class, which is the top award. Because, you know, they put the hardware together very, very well. That is so awesome. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap, and you can also grab that free white paper to help grease the wheels up the chain if you need to. It's a big <laughs> recommendation from the TechSnap program. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Alan, this next story comes from Brian Krebs about, uh, I think the software is called MSpy, and it lets you, say, spy on a spouse or a kid. And the spy software itself, which used, people use to hack other people's privacy, I guess, has been hacked. Like, this whole thing is yeah. funny. Like, a tool that's used to spy on other people now becomes a tool itself where people steal people's information from. Like, what is going on yeah. here? This sounds like a mess. Yeah. So, MSpy is the maker of a dubious software as a service product that claims to help more than 2 million people spy on mobile devices of their kids or partners. Lovely. And it appears they have been massively, massively hacked. <laughs> uh, last week, a trove of data apparently stolen from the company's servers were posted on the deep web, exposing countless emails, text messages, payments, and location data for an undetermined number of MSpy users. Yeah. Uh, so MSpy has not responded to multiple requests for comment at the time of the original post, uh, which was May 14th. Uh, and it says that I uh, shared a link to a web page only reachable via Tor. Uh, and you can see they have uh, apparently 400,000 users, including their Apple IDs, passwords, tracking data, payment details, photos, and lots of other security information. Woohoo. Hmm. Uh, so, like, any, payment basically details from 145,000 successful transactions. Anybody that's bought it and their customer information's in there is what you're saying. So, like, if you've bought well, the software. Apparently, it seems to have things like a keylogger in it and so it has the username oh. and password for your 
for Apple ID and stuff. Oh, 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 okay. I, I misunderstood. I was thinking maybe like the Apple ID. I guess they wouldn't buy it with their Apple ID. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's and bad. And so any other payments you made, it was basically logging everything you do on the device and sending it back to MSpy. And they put it in a big database, and the bad guys stole that big database. Right, because this thing's watching the computers of the people you install it on, and it has to log it back to a central location. Yeah, and they weren't doing a very good job of securing that. So this is, this is what happens with cloud-hosted spying programs. See, see, kids, back in my day when you spied on somebody, you just stored it to a local database file on the computer. And then, then this wouldn't have happened. You see? That's where you went uh, wrong. Apparently the dump <laughs> also included uh, thousands of support request emails to MSpy. And uh, stuff from customers who paid between $8.33 to as much as $800 for a vi- variety of subscriptions to the MSpy surveillance software. No. Oh, my god! Uh, they show an example of what the interface looks like. MSpy users can track the exact location of Android and iPhone users, yeah. snoop on apps like Snapchat and Skype, and keep a record of every word the user types. They say it's unclear exactly where MSpy is based. The company's website suggests it has offices in the United States, Germany, and the UK. Although the firm does not appear uh, to list any official physical addresses. However, according to historic website registration records, the company is tied to the now defunct M Technology Limited in the UK. Mm. Huh. And, and uh, it digs into uh, the company a bit more. If they're kind of if if they're kind of uh, a, a hard to track down company, how do you? What are, what 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 recourse? Well, the interesting uh, thing here is advertising and selling technology. Uh, advertising and selling spyware technology is a criminal offense, and as such, uh, conduct will be aggressively pursued by this office and our law enforcement agencies," says the U.S. Attorney. Uh, and so, one of the people that uh, Krebs finds might be related to uh, this M Spy company uh, pled guilty in 2014 uh, to. Um, writing, uh, selling spyware, and so on. How is that even legal? Ah, sorry, no, that was a different one. Uh, there was the other guy. Sorry, the other guy was the first person to ever be charged oh, with. Yeah. Uh, was it say uh, to make criminal activity in advertising and selling spyware that invades the unwitting victim's confidential communications? Mm. And they said, un- unlike that stealth genie program that the other guy was charged for, uh, M Spy advertises products. Uh, work even on non-jailbroken iPhones, giving users the ability to log the device holder's contacts, call log, text message, browser history, events, and notes. So, uh, you know, the BBC spun this a little differently. They called it a child spy firm. That's what they call MSpy. And they say they were... By child spy firm, they mean it's for spying yeah, on I know. children. I know. I just, it's kind of an intense way to, to frame that, uh, that headline. Now, they say here that the company's being blackmailed by the, uh, by the hackers, that they are... Uh, Likely. Yeah, that they want to blackmail... But it seems that some of the data has already been posted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Vice President uh, and Security Researcher Trend Micro told the BBC News that criminals holding the company's data for ransom are threatening to release it was a relatively frequent occurrence these days and that they release some of the information maybe as a masquerade and some of it maybe to show that they have legitimate data. The saddest part of the yeah. whole story is Wait. the data does turn out to be genuine. The real victims are people who are being spied on who might not even know that their communications have been under surveillance. Isn't that a great exactly. point? You don't know that your data has been compromised because you don't know that somebody's been spying on you. And so uh, how do they notify you? I guess they can make the app pop up on your phone. Oh, hey, we've been spying on you and we got hacked. So um, That's going to cause yeah, an awkward so, conversation. <laughs> yes. Uh, yesterday, Krebs posted an update where MSpy was denying the breach actually yeah. happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but customers have been confirming that, you know, that's my actual data, and it's obviously been stolen. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Uh, 
they're saying, no, it's not us. Yeah. No, it's not us. So Krebs broke the story that sensitive data apparently stolen from hundreds or uh, hundreds of thousands of customers of mobile spyware app uh, mSpy had been posted online. mSpy has since been quoted twice by other publications denying a breach of its systems. Meanwhile, this blog uh, has since contacted multiple people whose data was published on the deep web, all of whom confirmed that they uh, are active or former mSpy customers. Hmm. mSpy told the BBC that it had been the victim of a predatory attack by blackmailers, uh, but said it had not given in to demands for money. MSI also told the BBC that uh, claims the hacker had breached its system and stolen data were false. Uh, it's like, well, then how do they get the data? Because the customers are saying that, yes, they do have the data and that data is legitimate. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, uh, MSPY says, there is no data of 400,000 of our customers on the web. I wonder if that's because they don't actually have 400,000 customers. That's the only way they could possibly say that, right? Right. Right. Uh, we believe to have been a victim of a predatory attack aimed to take advantage of our established commercial achievements. <laughs> um, uh, that is ridiculous. And it, it, I wonder, too, so it's either that they don't have 400,000 customers or, you know, we did a Google search. We didn't see it. So... Uh, Krebs is like, maybe they mean the fact that it's not on the web because you can on only Tor. get to the data through Tor. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. It's a word yeah. game. It's not on the web. It's on Tor. Hmm. Uh, it says, uh, Krebs says, I, I don't doubt that MSFI was a target of extortion attempts. Uh, the fact that the company did not pay the extortionist is likely a result of the customer data being posted online. Look at this, Alan. One of the, one of the people that, that Krebs contacted... Had mm-hmm. had uh, he had dozens and dozens of his employees using MSpy to watch his employees, and all of their information is now leaked out. And he did a, he was a care provider in Arizona. Yeah. So this one, uh, Krebs says, how am I confident that uh, this has been leaked? Uh, considering MSpy is still not responding to requests for comments, is that I spend the better part of a day today pulling customer records from the hundreds of gigs of data leaked from MSpy. I spoke with multiple customers whose payment and personal data and that of their kids, employees, or significant others were included in the huge cash, all confirmed they are or were paying customers of MSpy. Uh, for example, he's, yeah, the guy that's the director of a home care provider in Arizona mm-hmm. confirmed that it was clear from looking at the leaked data that he had paid MSpy hundreds of dollars a month for subscription to monitor all the mobile devices distributed uh, to his employees of his company. Uh, he said all employees agree to the monitoring when they are hired, uh, but that he only used MSpy for approximately four months. Yeah, another this user the value proposition for the cost didn't work out, so MSpy was too expensive. Another user who didn't want to be identified, but sheepishly sheepishly confirmed that he had paid MSpy to secretly monitor the mobile device of a friend, just a friend. Mm-hmm. So you can install it on anybody's computer or phone. Yep. Uh, and there was another person who was monitoring her fourteen-year-old daughter's phone and still paying and for it. it. They were still paying for it uh, when Krebs called them and be like, hey, I have all this information about you. Is it correct? Uh, and then, you know, uh, news of the MSPY breach prompted renewed calls by Senator Al Franken for outlawing products like MSPY, uh, which he says are stalking apps. They, I, I kind of agree. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Plus, in a lot of ways... Do you need anything well, yes. more than location? Wiretapping people is illegal unless you have a warrant or you're the NSA. Right. Yeah, and then, then, it's, then apparently it's totally fine. <laughs> All right, any other thoughts on that story? 
Uh, nope, that's oh, what it felt. All right. Like. Well, I'll give you some thoughts about Ting. We have a great new special offer that expires towards the end of June. You can get a $50 service credit or $50 off your first Ting device when you go to TechSnap. Dot ting dot com. What is Ting? Ting is mobile that makes sense. My mobile service provider, they're on a mission to make mobile make sense. It's really the problem right now is there's two big companies in the U.S. that are destroying the mobile industry and making it completely anti-competitive, and they're milking customers for everything they can get. I, see, outside of the U.S., not everybody gets away with like contracts and termination fees and mobile caps that are ridiculous. Some people do. But a lot of countries and companies don't. And Ting is helping to introduce a little bit of that logic to the good old US of A. Ting is only pay for what you use wireless. They take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them all up, whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you pay. It's $6 for the line. And then it's just your usage on top of that. It really is very simple. And they have things like no-hold customer service at 1-855-TING-FTW. You can call them and talk to a real person. They have an incredible online help center which I always have used. In fact, they just recently updated it. You can go check it out when you go to help.ting.com. But do me a favor and go to techsnap.ting.com. Not only does that get you the $50 credit, but it also helps to promote our show. And you can go do all... I've always been able to do all of the self-help stuff, but they do have no-hold customer service, which is really awesome. I want you to go to techsnap.ting.com and click on that how much would you save button just to get an idea if Ting is right for you. Go in there and tell how much you, how much you normally would use. Um, so let's say you can you know, maybe use 250 or whatever minutes. It kind of depends. If you use Wi-Fi calling, maybe use... I do everything over Telegram. So let's say I'm going to say five text messages. Uh, and megabytes, so I'll use, I use quite a bit of Wi-Fi, but I also want to go, so I'm going to say I'll use about 1,200 megabytes. And um, I think my old bill was around $149 a month for that, but it's about what I use. Because remember, the way the duopolies work is they're getting you to pay for what you might use. So if you might use 4 gigabytes, then you better pay for 6 gigabytes. If you might use 200 minutes, you better pay for 400 minutes. If you might use 400 minutes, you better pay for 1,000, right? This is how they yep. get you. So Ting is doing it where you only pay for what you use. So you plug in all that information over the Ting Savings Calculator, click that Calculate Savings button, and see how much you would save. Over a two-year contract, if you switch to Ting that you would save $2,448 if your usage matches similar to what I just said. So go see how much yours would be. So I've saved over $2,000 in the last two years by switching to Ting. That's hard money. That's like a new laptop every single year. And Ting also has an early termination relief program. So if you're stuck in one of those horrible contracts right now, buy one of those duopolies. They'll help you get out of that. You can find out more at Ting's ETF relief program page. And then when you get a phone, you're going to buy an unlocked device that you own outright. Starting at $47, you can get the Kyocera Dura XT, a great feature phone. You kick things up a little bit, $91, you can get the Moto G. That's a great phone for under 100 bucks. Now you can go a little farther. You start looking at the iPhones and the higher-end uh, uh, Android phones, like the Galaxy Tab 4 and the One Plus and the Sharp Aquios Crystal and the HTC One E8 and the Moto X2 and the Samsung Tab and the Galaxy S5 and the HTC M9 and the Note 4 and the Nexus 6 and the iPhone 6. Ting has them all. You own them outright, unlocked. Your devices only pay for what you use. And when you go to techsnap.ting.com, they'll take $50 off your first device. And if you have a Ting-compatible device, and you just might because they have GSM and CDMA support, so there's a lot mm -hmm. of devices you can bring to Ting, they'll give you a $50 credit. I guarantee you that's going to pay for more than your first month. Unless... You got to call like Barack Obama for like four hours while he's flying in Air Force One over China. I don't think there's a go. I don't know how you could spend more than $50, but it's probably possible. My first bill on Ting was like $22 for my first month. So a $50 yep. service credit is going to get you a long way. And if you get one of those MiFi's, 
That $50 is going to get you data in your pocket for months. TechSnap.ting.com. Go change your wireless service. Help make the industry better, get treated better, and get an unlocked phone. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. TechSnap.ting.com. Mobile that makes sense. Just call them. 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. on Allen's time, uh, you know, East Coast uh, during the week. And just ask some questions if you have any. If it seems like it's too good to be true, call them and ask them, hey, is this too good to be true? <laughs> see what they say. I sometimes, I call them just because sometimes they send me a postcard. Just saying. Just saying. Okay, Alan, let's talk about RSA keys. Because you know what? It wouldn't be a tech snap without a little RSA key talk. So where do we start? Yeah. Uh, so there was a recent uh, post from a, a company um, that's selling factoring as a service in the cloud or whatever. Really? Uh, where they claim they have factored a 4096-bit RSA key, in oh. particular the PGP key of a famous Linux developer. Which famous Linux developer, did they say? Uh, yep. Um, Linus Torvalds. No. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know Linux developers. Okay, as long as it's not Linus Torvalds or uh, uh, Greg KH, I probably don't care. <laughs> H. Peter Anvin, HPA. Okay, okay, yeah. All right, well... Uh, and uh, so it was his PGP key. Uh, so, uh, wow, that's incredible. This is the, uh, so the blog we're featuring as the news item is a rebuttal to that blog. Okay. But I have links to both in there. All right. Uh, and he says the key in question was the PGP key of a well-known Linux developer or kernel developer. Uh, and he says uh, the researcher who, uh, sorry, the guy who wrote the rebuttal post is saying the researcher is mistaken. Uh, oh. And he is pretty sure the researcher is mistaken because he once thought he had factored that same key, <laughs> but then he found out that he hadn't. Um, and so that's why he's pretty sure that them announcing this discovery is them finding out the same thing he did and just not realizing the mistake as quickly as he did. <laughs> okay, I love it. Yeah, so a little bit of background. The RSA public keys consist of two values called N and E. The N value... Uh, which is called the modulus, is the interesting one. Uh, it's the product of two very large prime numbers uh, multiplied together. The um, security of RSA relies on the fact that these two numbers are secret, the two numbers that you multiply together to get the modulus. Um, if an attacker would be able to gain knowledge of these numbers, he could use them to calculate the private key and break RSA encryption. Um, that's the reason why RSA depends on the hardness of the factoring problem. Mm. If you had the modulus and you could factor and figure out the two numbers that were multiplied together to get it, you would be able to do that. Uh, if someone can factor the modulus, uh, then they can break RSA. For all we know today, factoring is hard enough to make RSA secure, mm. or as long as there are no really large quantum computers, it will be. Now imagine you have two RSA keys, uh, but they've been generated with bad random numbers. They're different but one of their primes happens to be the same. Uh, that means we have, you know, N1 is the prime multiplied by secret number one, and N2 is the prime multiplied by secret number two. Uh, in this case, RSA is no longer secure because calculating the greatest common divisor, GCD, of two large numbers can be done very fast uh, with the Euclidean algorithm, which is a 2,500-year-old Greek math thing. Hmm. Uh, Therefore, one can calculate the shared prime value quickly. Uh, and then the other thing you need to know for background is PGP key servers have been around for quite a long time. Yeah. And the interesting thing about them 
is that they never get rid of anything. Uh, and they're interesting for this kind of research uh, because they basically have every key ever, even old expire ones from the 90s and yeah, so on, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can add a key to a key server, but you can't remove it. Uh, you can only mark it as being invalid by revoking it. Hmm. Therefore, using the data from the key servers gives you a large set of cryptographic keys to compare to try to uh, find these common denominators. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, yeah. Uh, and the researcher noticed that some keys appear to have uh, to contain subkeys that are nearly identical copies, but with tiny errors. So if you look at the printouts there on the screen, yeah. you see two giant blobs of numbers. And if you're looking at them, if you look closely, they're almost exactly the same. Yeah. And it's like... I don't you know, actually even I, notice I actually, a difference at just yeah, glancing exactly. at them. Yeah, uh, somewhere in there, there is a couple of one-character differences. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, look, the fourth uh, set over and the fourth lying down. It's uh-huh, F8 uh-huh. on the one and then yeah. one E on the other or uh-huh. something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and he says, I don't know how these appeared on the key servers, but I assume they produced by a network error, a flip bit in the packet as it went across the internet, hmm. or a hard drive error or a software bug or something. Mm-hmm. But when somebody uploaded their key, it got slightly garbled uh, as it was being sent. And this, and this key server was like, oh, that's not the old key I already knew about. It's a new key. Yeah, and it right. stuck it in there. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's, act- it's not a key that actually ever existed. It's just a real key that's been garbled slightly. This <laughs> uh, is the important thing is anyone or everyone can generate a subkey to a PGP key and upload it to the key server. That's just the way the key server works, mm-hmm. right? They're, you don't have to prove it's your key to upload it. They don't check keys in any way. However, these keys uh, should pose no threat to anyone. The only case when this could happen would be some broken implementation of OpenPGP where the key protocol does not check if subkeys really belong to the master key. But as far as we know, everybody is not doing it wrong. He says, however, you won't be able to easily import such a key into your local uh, GNU PG installation. Uh, if you fetch this faulty subkey from the key server, uh, GPG will refuse to import it. The reason is that every subkey has a signature that proves it belongs to a certain master key. If the key has been garbled slightly, like we see there, uh, then those faulty keys, the signature won't be correct and it will be rejected. Uh, so now he says, now here's my personal tie to this story. Last year, I started a project to analyze the data on the PGP key servers. At some point, I thought I had found a large number of vulnerable PGP keys, including the key in question here. <laughs> in a rush, I wrote an email to all the people affected. Mm-hmm. Only later, I found out that something was not right, and I had to write all those affected people back and apologize. Most of the keys that I thought I had found were just faulty versions of the valid keys, and so he hadn't actually factored anything. Because <laughs> uh, basically, if you look at it, uh, the one, the faulty ones basically are factorable with like a divider of like three instead of, or like 216 or something instead of an extremely large random number like it's supposed to be. Because it was faulty, they factored easily. And it's like, oh, well, that's not right. Uh, and But yes, the reason is they weren't actually generated with bad random numbers. It's that they were garbled at some point and, we don't, and just contained. We don't quite know yeah. how. Right, but it's easy to see how, you know, uh, there's a study we looked at before, remember, where looking for, um, if you, registering a domain name, that's a one-bit error for, like, google.com, and then seeing how many people actually hit it, 
are doing DNS lookups for it because at some point, some packet going across the internet, the one bit gets flipped and all of a sudden, instead of your DNS lookup being for google.com, it's for, you know, google.com or something. <laughs> yep. Where one, one character gets changed by one bit yep. um, and it changes the, the name. And there's quite a few of them. So we, we are aware of the fact that there are one bit errors out there floating around on the internet and they happen, so. Huh. But yeah, uh, one or more of those happened in one of these keys and caused it to have uh, its factor being 231, which is just 3 times 77. And so... Could you <laughs> yeah, imagine... it caused it easily to be factorable. Could you imagine, like, thinking what you've discovered here and, like, the rush of that? And then, like, yep. the arbitrariness of the randomness of, like, just this flaw that's worked its way into the key server, like... Yeah, we were just, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Somebody uploaded their key over a wireless and one of the bits got flipped. And, yeah. you know, PGP key savers aren't over, you know, SSL or anything, so they don't have any checking that the packets have, has been modified or whatever. And So you're saying yeah. the death of PGP has been greatly exaggerated? The death of RSA has been greatly exaggerated. Okay. A better way to Because RSA is also yeah. used in SSL, yeah. SSH, everything else. If it was just PGP, we would have less of a problem, but the yeah. chance of that is, is pretty low. Well, very so good. Mr. Hopefully, Jude. everything's actually okay. Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, I think uh, the the guy who posted his rebuttal blog definitely feels the pain of the guy who made the big hype about it because he almost made the same mistake. <laughs> well, yeah, that does, I suppose, happen from time to time. Yep. I would, I would have caught me up. All right, let's talk about DigitalOcean. That's the next sponsor on the Coda Radio, Coda Radio program. Where am I? Hey, you know, actually, I oh, I guess it's no no good for you guys, but I was just going to say uh, I, we are going to have a special build event, but now that we recorded this, it's already over. Go check out Coda Radio from last week. We did a special build event, and uh, we recorded on Friday. I should probably mention that, speaking of Coda Radio, and I didn't get a chance to plug it last week like I meant to. I want to talk about DigitalOcean, the sponsor for the TechSnap program, and really a great service for the TechSnap audience. Not only are they hiring Linux developers and writers, which might be great for you guys. Go check out the careers at DigitalOcean. But this is a great option when you need infrastructure on demand. You want to build out a Linux rig, and you want something out in the public that you can bang on, either in production or for testing, check out DigitalOcean. They make deploying things like Docker containers or new servers so fast and straightforward. I love this. Because if you're working on something locally, say like on your laptop, and you just want to publish it up online to get people to work on it immediately, it's great for that. Or if you're somebody like me who just needs some back-end infrastructure like OwnCloud, BitTorrent, Sync, uh, I need a Jitsi server to do uh, some uh, WebRTC stuff, this is all where DigitalOcean comes in for me. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You're going to have root access to this bad boy up in their data centers with an HTML5 console. You can get started in less than 55 seconds in pricing plans. They start at only $5 a month. Five dollars a month. I can't. E I can't even. I can't even fathom. Like I can't get lunch for five dollars. Like there's almost nothing I can get for five dollars anymore. And I can pay for an entire month of hosting at DigitalOcean with five dollars a month. It's amazing, and you can get started in less than fifty-five seconds too. So. That's an amazing time savings, too, if your time is money. You can get 512 megabytes of RAM for $5 a month. You get 20 gigabyte SSD because they're all SSDs throughout, one CPU, mm -hmm. and a terabyte of transfer for $5. And then their pricing plans just work up logically from there. You get, you know, you pay another $5, you get more stuff. You pay another, you get more stuff. You pay another, you get more stuff. It's really straightforward. And then it's all wrapped around this incredible interface. DigitalOcean has a really intuitive control panel that you can replicate on a larger scale with their straightforward API. And also, if you need to service people over in, you know, 
Europe, check out their new data center in Germany. They have a brand new data center where each hypervisor has 40 gigabit E connections coming to them. It's their fastest SSDs yet, and the data center they've selected is perfect for getting great performance to the neighboring countries of Germany and also, of course, in Germany. They also have data centers in London, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, New York. I've got, I was trying to think of where mine are. I've got a data center in New York and two in San Francisco because San Francisco is a little closer to Washington, so might as well keep it on the West Coast. And then I put one on the, on the East Coast so that way the folks over there get even better performance when they're syncing with my BitTorrent. Go check out DigitalOcean and use our promo code SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean will give you a $10 credit. You can try out the $5 rig two months or try out a nicer one. They even hour have hourly pricing. You could really stretch that out. You just apply SnapOcean to your existing DigitalOcean balance, and they'll give you a $10 credit. And remember, DigitalOcean is also willing to pay for your tutorials. Potential writers can submit a writing sample to become a tutorial writer. You can learn more about the writing program on DigitalOcean's website. They're also hiring Linux sysadmins. So go check out the career options over at DigitalOcean. They have editing positions. They need tutorials written. They need admins. I mean, it's a great chance to go work for an incredible company. DigitalOcean.com. Go check them out and use our promo code SNAPOcean to get the $10 credit, try out that $5 rig, two months absolutely free, and see how productive you can be. Be impressed, too. I mean, really, like, just enjoy updating your software. It sounds silly, but the, the connections at DigitalOcean are so fast that just doing a software update is super rewarding. It, is, it's a little, it sounds geeky, but just watching all those packages fly down and then blast it onto that hard drive... Uh, it's so cool. I mean, there's so many other things you can do, but just getting started right there. DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean, and a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. Mr. Jude, I don't know if you knew this, but they also have free BSD now. I did. Oh, it turns out you did. I, I think you know everything that happens to free BSD. I think you have like some sort of brain... Wired, you're like a Borg member that just gets well, all. Well, I updates. have a guy that writes a show about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. Hey, you know, you guys just uh, featured an interview um, from uh, Linux Fest Northwest with Jed well, last it, week. Yeah, yes. last week. Yep, with Jed in uh, BSD Now episode ninety. I probably should have mentioned then that Women's Tech Radio also just uh, had a couple of episodes release with their interviews from Linux Fest Northwest. Episode 27 and 26 and 25 were all from Linux Fest Northwest. So you can find out Women's Tech, find Women's Tech Radio hosted by Angela and Paige. It's an interview style show where they go in and talk with uh, women in technology and document their journey. And uh, it's very interesting. Episode 27, 26, and 25, additional Linux Fest Northwest content from the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. But Mr. Jude, with the news all done, that means indeed it is time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And Darren writes in with a question about digital preservation. Hmm. <laughs> he says, how do you preserve past episodes of TechSnap? I'm interested in questions of fixity. What's that mean? Checksums and technology to monitor and fix copying errors, bit rot, etc. I particularly today have been looking at Bagger, a tool, or Badger maybe, a tool that packages files uh, to the Bagit standard for long-term storage. And he's got a YouTube video if you're interested. I know you guys are great with backup solutions, snapshot rollbacks, etc. But I'm wondering what sort of metadata you might use for your files and what standards you might utilize, like checksums and UUIDs, to keep track of things. In particular, I'm wondering about checking the checksums. How many checksums might you check at once and how often as a corpus of files grows, checking all of them periodically seems to really use a lot of resources. Isn't that true? 
it basically sounds like he's not familiar with how ZFS works. He's probably doing, you know, when I when he said that last sentence there, I was like, I bet he's doing like some sort of hash on an extended four file well, yeah, system. Actually, <laughs> or, yeah, uh, yeah. If you're doing a regular file system and your hash is, you know, running MD5 on the file and putting it in a file beside it called, you know, blah.checksum or something, and then verifying those manually over time, yeah, you're going to have all kinds of horrible nightmares. Mm -hmm. With ZFS, what happens is the file system, every time it writes a block to the disk, and uh, uh, now the blocks can be up to a megabyte, but uh, in most people's installs of ZFS, they're limited to 128 kilobytes. Mm. Every block gets checksummed. So not the entire video file as one unit, but each individual block of 128 kilobytes uh, gets checksummed. Uh, and that checksum gets written as part of the block. And then the metadata is above it, and it has a checksum. And the checksum goes all the way up the tree. And so ZFS checksums all the way down to the data and then all the way back up. So every bit of data that's stored about it, including all the metadata and the metadata about the metadata, is all checksummed. Uh, and as soon as you try to read a block from the disk and the checksum doesn't match, uh, ZFS will engage its self-healing and grab a second copy off one of the other disks or however you've configured your redundancy and restore the broken copy and everything will be fine. <laughs> so the biggest thing is uh, you don't have to periodically check the checksums because ZFS will do it automatically every time you read the file. And is there... So, like, say uh, for, for long-term storage, that's what the scrub command is for. It basically okay. walks the entire file system which is actually a tree, so it starts at the top and walks down every and branch of every tree. Wait, but let me pause you right there. Every single if, block. If I was going to do off, if I was, if say I had a ZFS storage array and I wanted this mm -hmm. is going to be my long term storage, is there something I should do before I put a d bunch of data on there? Or is it if it's ZFS, that's all I need to do? All you do is write the data to it, and then periodically, say once a month or once a quarter, run a ZFS scrub. It will read every block of everything on the entire file system and check the checksums. And if it finds a problem, it'll fix it right then okay. before you might end up with two problems yeah. in a file or something. And, but uh, mainly the reason to do that is because it will detect the dying disks sooner than the disks would normally let you know and let you replace the disk sooner and, and before uh, it's more dead. So, and then a couple other, like, so non-ZFS solutions, I suppose, would be like yeah, backups do checksums. So if you're doing backups so, frequently of the data, they'll be checking the, the integrity that way. But this might the one be your I was backup. thinking of is like the old Usenet way with the dot the parity files, the dot par or whatever. Yeah. Where you get a bunch of yeah. these parity to repair different size errors in the file. Um, and I'm guessing that's what Bagit is. I haven't actually looked at it, but mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like something similar. Mm -hmm. um, for checksums, you know, you can do something like a SHA-256 and then periodically check it, but it really be... seems like yeah, it's a lot less work if you use a file system that's designed to do it, and it has a command that's just going to walk through everything and checksum it. And the other big advantage is, you know, with ZFS, because you're checksumming each block and the metadata and so on, it's going to uh, catch problems sooner. And if there is a problem, it's going to be with a smaller chunk of the file rather than the whole file and mm. so on. Um, but yeah, if you need to restore redundancy, normally, you know, with ZFS, you do something like RAID Z or something so that every block has two or three copies of it, or two or three bits so that you can put it together despite the loss. Um, if you're using something else, then yeah, you're going to end up needing something uh, like parity files where you're going to have, you know, expand the file by 10% and have enough to make up any one chunk of the file that goes bad or something. Mm -hmm. And as far as actually archiving and keeping track of all the videos and having something like UUIDs or, or something so you actually can find the right episode of TechSnap going back over time, that's an entirely different problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you're keeping a huge list of files and you have to figure out what one's what and when it came from and so on, that's that's a whole different problem. Mm, yeah, you need a whole system just to track that. <coughs> yep. hmm. Good question. But yeah, there. the biggest thing with uh, ZFS is going to be, it's not so much the snapshots and the rollbacks, it's the transparent checksumming. Everything is checksummed all the time. Every time you read the file, it will never give you a bad block of the file. It will either give you the right block off the disk, the right block off of its parity somewhere, or an error. It will never give you a garbled copy of the block. Alan, uh, we couldn't have a ZFS question without then following up with a PFSense question. Like, if we're going to have the perfect sure. combo. Uh, so uh, GX writes in, he says, Hey, Alan, thanks for all the help. I finally got my off my butt and put a PFSense in front of my network. I got the SG2440 direct from the PFSense store to help the project. Now cool. I have some advanced use case questions for you. I'm hosting my own mail server with a web front end, and this appliance uses the following ports and protocols, 80 and 443, you know, HTTP and HTTPS. And he also has 8443 for HTTPS to his own cloud web UI. Uh, he's using port 25 for SMTP, 465 for secure SMTP, 110 for POP3, 995 for secure POP3, and 22 for a super secret hole. I managed to get port 40 working and everything is running smooth, so I had to find some way to break it, of course. Okay, my first question is, why is he not doing IMAP? And who still uses POP3? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm yeah. with the question. He says, I managed to get port 40 working and everything is running smooth, so I had to find some way to break it. And what I need to know now is how, how to host a second appliance. Since they both use the same ports, I want a forward based on domain. Before you get ahead of yourself and start babbling on about layer 3 packet sniffing and such, let me just say that I'm not a sysmad admin and I don't do networking. Uh, but I try, so I'm not a complete idiot. I just uh, not too fluent. So to quote Angela, give me some credit. That said, I did my homework and read up a bit. First suggestions is always get another public IP, but getting a static IP was enough of a hassle, and I'd have to pay heavily for it. So I'm too scared to ask my ISP for another one. Uh, they might ban me, or who would think? No, they're not going to ban you. It's not like there's a limited number they're running out or something. So why be so stingy? <laughs> yes, I understand that NAT and port 40 is too simple and low level for what I need. And reverse proxy was suggested to me already. PFSense comes with a Squid 3 package, but it looks like as if it only handles HTTP and not mail protocols. I know Nginx handles mail protocols as well as HTTP, and it's a good reverse proxy because I've used it before. And then of course I need certifications. Do I have to get a copy of them on the PFSense? And that's a pain in the butt. Is there no easier way to do a man in the middle? You think hackers have it easier than us, after all. GX. Well, in particular, uh, what I'd suggest for this is Nginx. Uh, so you would actually have Nginx mm-hmm. either on the PFSense or on one of the host machines, backend or whatever, listing on the port 80 and 443 and 8443, and they would receive the incoming connections, and then using host name-based uh, vhosts, so basically, if the server name is X, then you want to talk to this web server on my LAN. And if the host name is Y, then you want to talk to this server on my VLAN. Or, uh, LAN. Uh, and so that would allow you to do HTTP, HTTPS, and your HTTPS on a different port. And it would, uh, you would put the certificates in that Nginx, and then you can choose whether or not you actually want to keep doing SSL from the Nginx to your other machine in your LAN or not. Uh, and that'll work for that. For mail, it's a little more complicated. I guess he's talking about having two different mail servers hosted in his LAN? Yeah, well, no, I think he has two different web servers in his LAN. I think he only yeah, has one. Yeah, web servers are easy with Nginx, but he mentioned yeah. that the reverse proxies can't do mail. Yeah, but but uh, he, then he said something about Nginx is able to do mail. Is that true? Nginx is able to do some mail stuff, but I think it was mostly proxying mail over HTTP or something. Yeah. I don't know yeah. that much about it. Um hmm. Yeah, the problem with POP3 is that when you log in to it and so on, you don't usually tell it the host name of the server you're trying to get to, so it can't do host name-based uh, switching. Right. 
but uh, Nginx can do the hostname-based switching to let him uh, have multiple sites running on port 80, basically. Uh, so you have multiple s servers or VMs in your LAN that are running all the different websites. Then you have the reverse proxy Nginx sitting there, and it gets the request over HTTP or HTTPS, looks in it, there's a host header where the client tells you what site they were trying to connect to, and you use that information to decide which machine to forward them to in the back end. I don't know if there's something like that built right into the PFSense very easily or not, mm, but uh, Nginx can do it mm -hmm. in a couple of lines of config, and it's quite easy. And he's worked with Nginx uh, before. Yeah, and so for mail, it could be harder. I, I don't know if he's actually talking about having two different POP3 servers and trying to differentiate those, that's probably not doable. No. For SMTP, if you have two different servers that are doing different domains, I don't know why you were doing that, but if you do, you can configure one of them to just uh, basically act like a backup MX, receive the mail, and forward it to the other one. Uh, but that's probably not what you're after either. So I'm not sure about the, uh, the mail side of it. Uh, but for the website, yes, uh, Nginx can definitely do it. Squid might be able to, but you're probably better off. Mm -hmm. What you do is just forward the 80 and 443 to like the machine that's doing your own cloud. Uh, and then in the Nginx there, you just say, hey, if they're connected to the address of the mail server, we do proxy underscore pass the internal IP address of the mail server, uh, and that machine will just bounce it off there. And then there's um, a module for Nginx called Real IP. And uh, you can just set the header in your Nginx config and you can say, hey, uh, my own cloud server is allowed to fake its IP address when it talks to the mail server and you can pass the real user's IP address uh, to the uh, webmail client mm -hmm. that way. Great. David writes so in. Do it. With uh, and then, yeah, for certificates, mm -hmm. uh, Nginx uh, supports oh, yeah, the uh, server name indication. So it can actually choose the right SSL certificate based on the name because uh, it's actually included by newer clients in the request. Uh, the other nice thing is if you get a wildcard certificate mm. for like star.mydomain.com, it covers all your different subdomains, including like mail.mything.com and owncloud.mything.com. Awesome. Okay, yep. now David writes, uh, guess what? You're going to love this one. Uh, mm -hmm. He says, ZFS, is RAID Z2 fault tolerant offset by rebuild stress time? Uh, okay, so this is, that's a, I don't know what he's saying there, but the rest. This is the Basically subject line. Basically saying, uh, does having the two drives of fault tolerance while uh, they're rebuilding good enough, considering it might take longer yeah. to rebuild? Okay, so thanks very much for the inf informative broadcast. I always find something interesting. We're looking at implementing a free NAS server as a back-end storage for a variety of VMs, assortment of file servers, and a few database servers. In this case, we have 12 4-terabyte SAS disks for the build. We use NFS to provide the storage for our Zen server pools. I previously used RAID Z2 and created two 6-desk VDEVs for the fault tolerance. This time, however, I've been reading some articles that suggest that the mirrors might be the way to go. The articles suggest that rebuilding a failed mirror takes much less time and puts less stress on the remaining disk because it's simply reading from the good disk rather than having to read and write the partial inf the parity information during the rebuild the article it's, well it's it's yes and no it's not so much that the parity takes a long time to calculate it's that in a mirror it's linear you just start at the front of the disk and you just copy all the data exactly with uh, raid Z because it doesn't know how long each block is it has to walk through the metadata and it can take longer uh, in general if the disk isn't more than like if the disk isn't quite full and all fragmented the uh, time it takes uh, to do a RAID Z2 recovery will be less because you don't have to do every byte of every disk, so it'll be faster than RAID 6. 
uh, because in RAID 6, it just has to do the entire disk, even mm-hmm. all the free space, because it does the, the RAID controller doesn't know what's free space and what's data. ZFS does, so it's copying less data. But because it's seeking around a lot, it might take longer. Uh, and so depending how full your disks are and how busy they are and a bunch of other things, it affects how much better the RAID Z2 algorithm is than the RAID 6 algorithm. And to that end, ZFS is actually looking at implementing at least either an option for it or an algorithm to detect when it would be better to actually just do the linear copy everything, including the free space, because it'll actually be faster than walking through the metadata because mm. the disk is fragmented and, and full of other stuff. Uh, so in the end, yes, the mirrors will recover faster than RAID Z if they are, uh, because mirrors are both, right? It's going to be linear and only the used data, so not his, the free space. His question was definitely about rebuild time and stress on the drives, but I think he also wondered, will just general improvements perhaps be better if I go with the with the mirrors? Yeah, uh, he, yeah. like you said, the article also suggests that overall pool for runs will remain very high because yeah. the server can continue to use the remaining mirrors without impacting. So yes, overall, your read speed is going to be faster off uh, mirrors. The more VDEVs you have, so if you have 12 disks, you would have six two-disk mirrors, or two six-disc VDEVs for RAID Z, mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. Uh, six uh, discs is always going to be faster, and mirrors are super fast for reading and slower for write, possibly. So in the end, total write throughput might be slightly less in your six-mirror case than in your uh, RAID Z VDEV, your two RAID Z VDEVs, but your random write rate will be much higher with mirrors because you have six independent units instead of two. Uh, so your total megabytes per second might be slightly lower, but your IOPS will be higher. Uh, so mirrors might actually be the way to go. Mm-hmm. The downside to the mirror, obviously, is if two disks die and they happen to be in the same mirror, you've lost everything. Whereas with RAID Z2, if two disks die, you're fine. Uh, so then if you want to maintain the ability to lose any two disks, now your mirrors have to be three deep and your 12 disks will only give you four VDEVs. Uh, now, that's still more performance, uh, but now you're down to what is uh, four times four terabytes of space instead of four times six terabytes of space. It's hmm. a good caution. Yeah, uh, and it finally says keeping data safe is always the priority. Yeah, but I do have a few database servers to put on these servers, and you know, I I need to have the pool continue to function while the uh, rebuild is going on. Uh, given the four terabyte size of the drives, would mirrors perhaps be a better way to go? Um, it really depends on your workload a lot. It also depends what's in those databases. If those databases are small enough, you might consider a separate SSD pool for the databases because that'll always be faster for the database. And then uh, that changes things. So yeah, yeah. for databases, you usually do mirrored uh, SSDs. Whereas for uh, you know bulk storage, you're usually limited by your space efficiency and so on. Uh, there's a nice table breaking down some of the trade-offs between RAID Z2 and mirrors and so on in the March-April issue of FreeBSD Journal uh, called ZFS Best Practices that I wrote last month. Uh, <laughs> so if you check out freebsdjournal.org, there's uh, an article that has a table that answers some of this in, the, in a giant complicated table. Or if that's not enough, if you go and buy the book uh, that Michael Lucas and I just finished, ZFS, uh, FreeBSD Mastery ZFS, um, it has a much expanded version of that table. Yeah, the, this just went to print today? Like, so it's uh, not yeah, available yet, but... Get, well, the ebook is. Ah. Uh, if you go to zfsbook.com, okay. you get 10% off for pre-ordering the book, mm-hmm. and you get a PDF of the in-progress draft. Uh, that draft is a couple days old now, but um, 
and once you buy it, you'll keep getting updates cool. uh, as we keep doing drafts, although we're pretty much done with the drafts. Uh, and then you'll get the final ebook version when it comes out automatically, and you save 10%. So you pay $8.99 instead of $9.99. Great domain, too. ZFSbook.com. Alan, yes. uh, congratulations. That's a big deal. Yes. That, that must have been a lot of work uh, to get that oh, done. Oh, do you have the cover art handy? I, well, I have, the, I have what's on the, uh, the uh, um, webpage here. That's not the cover art. <laughs> I don't know if I do that. The cover art was only decided today. So. Oh, if you link it to me, I will. I, if we yes, can, I'm is it okay? I can show it? it? Yep, yep. Yep. Won't. I'm not uh, breaking NDA or anything. I don't want to. No. Okay, I don't want to get you in trouble. Where's the one that's not sideways? There it is. Zfsbook.com. Yes. Man, Alan, that's really neat. And it's only like nine bucks for the book, and uh, yeah. the money goes to a good place. Um, all right. Michael's pocket. What? <laughs> well, it's a good, they're good people, and you know maybe other. Yes. And if you, are you gonna, you should get some money from it. you worked on it, Alan. They should. Mm. I tell you what. Uh, all right. So There's here the we cover. go. And uh, actually, that's the whole that's outside of the awesome. book, so it's got the back cover, too. Oh, my gosh, Alan. That is so cool. Wow. That is, that's really great. So it's uh, $9 for the ebook and $25 for the paperback. Is that what it is? I'm not sure about the price there. Oh. Where that $24.99 came from. Okay. It might be for the paperback. Okay. I don't know. Very uh, cool. The print edition will be out uh, hopefully in time for BSD Can and a book signing. Cool. Oh, my gosh. Wow, zfsbook.com. I mean, you hear Alan talk about uh, ZFS all the time. Now you can get it all in one canonical resource. That's pretty cool, Alan. That's, that's technically a tricycle, not a unicycle. I, don't, I didn't see a unicycle in that picture. Did I miss something? Are you talking to the chat room? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Alan, silly chat room. Is that, you on a, is that supposed to be you? Did I, did I, did I miss no. it? Okay. No, nothing is supposed to be me. Okay. I, no, yeah, uh, those are old French-type bicycles with a big wheel at the front and a small one at the back. None of those are actually a unicycle. No, you're right, yeah. But Beastie is on a tricycle. Yeah, yeah. See, they do have little wheels in the back. Yeah. yeah. You just can't see the one because Beastie's foot. Yeah. Beastie's got some Snickers on, or Snickers, some sneakers on, too. Yes. Uh, all right, so if you'd like to Beastie send... Beastie always your, has sneakers on. Yeah, well, it's because he's got, he's got some running to do. If you want to, uh, if you want to uh, send an email into the TechSnap program... Yes, BSD never stops running. That's right. Because it's trying to catch up. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Listen, we want your emails. Come on. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Also, apparently Chris wants a beating. <laughs> no, see, if we don't have enough emails, then this is what happens. This is, <laughs> this yes. is what they get. No, no, actually, we got a great batch of emails. We, uh, we, just th- we were recording a double episode today, so we went through. Uh, we're close to inbox zero now, so we do need them. Jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com to email us directly. Or subreddit's fine, too. TechSnap.reddit.com and ZFSbook.com. Go check that out and grab yourself Alan's new book. It's very cool. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on after your own. A lot of these links came from our subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. And our first story makes me just go, huh? What? Not what we've been hearing. Uh, the U.S. government denies that it actually is stockpiling a bunch of zero-day exploits to hack its enemies. This is a story that sort of counters a lot of reading that we've done. In an interview about the government's zero-day policy, Michael Daniel, the National Security Council Cybersecurity Coordinator and Special Advisor to Obama on cybersecurity issues, insists to Wired that the government doesn't stockpile a large number of zero days for use. The quote is, there's often this image that the government has spent a lot of time and effort to discover vulnerabilities that we've stockpiled in huge numbers. The reality is, it's just not nearly as stark or as interesting as that. And uh, Mike Rogers, the head of the NSA who replaced Keith Alexander, 
said mm-hmm. that uh, the greatest number of vulnerabilities they find that they share and that they're not stockpiling a bunch of them. What do you think, Alan? Do you trust it? Do you believe it? They have some, it sounds uh, like. You know, I, I hope that they don't. Yeah, it sounds like they have some. And, uh, you know, it'd be uh, pretty embarrassing for them to get caught red-handed if they're lying. So, uh, yeah. Not that that's ever stopped them before. That's true. That's true. All right, Mr. G. Now, this next roundup story, uh, this is a beginner for beginners, analyzing unknown binary files using information entropy. Well, that sounds yes. right up here. So, yeah, uh, I saw this and thought it was pretty interesting, especially since it starts at the beginner level. And it's like, well, let's see what we can find out about this random file that we haven't looked at before uh, just by taking a look at what's in there. And so they did a, a, like a GOIP file which assigns mm-hmm. ISPs to a block of IP addresses, and they took a look at it, and uh, they uh, there's some fancy visuals. I, it's a little b- beyond what we, me what they're doing here, though. What well, is it? I have had time to read the whole thing to oh, okay. understand it all, but, you know, they can They can find the entropy in there, though. Uh, and I guess if I'm a beginner, it's probably a good place to start, so thank you, Alan. Thank you for finding that. I will take Yeah, it. or, for example, they look at a more uh, uh, complex one, like uh, the firmware for a TP-Link WR... Uh, yeah. 941 router. Yeah. And you see that it's almost all just the eights there. And so uh, it was, uh, we see there are three blocks uh, with a couple of empty spots between them. First block is small, the second is big, and the third is really big. And I uh, can't be sure about the exact entry of the first block, but the second and third blocks have very high entropy, meaning that these blocks are either compressed or encrypted. Right. Right. Uh, because there's, you know, it's all random. Whereas if you look at the GIP data, it kind of all over the place because it has, you know, all this data, IP addresses and locations and stuff. So there's a lot of numbers all over the place, but it seems to be fairly consistent. Whereas this uh, firmware blob that's either compressed or encrypted is just 100% entropy. So we know for a fact that it's got, ah, ah. when we actually look at it with an analyzer, we see it's all LZMA compressed data. Mm, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting how you can visualize yeah. it like that. Yeah. That's neat. Maybe have some scatter plots at the bottom. Yeah. Quite interesting. <laughs> we'll have uh, we'll have more of that. But yeah, if you're not watching the video, video version, there's some interesting visuals in there. All right. Uh, the Philadelphia City Council website was hacked. There's not a lot here, but it's kind of embarrassing what happened. Uh, mm-hmm. It was one of these defacements, and they put up, like, they ID'd who they were, said they're an international hacking team. Uh, they say your security is very low, and you'll love this one, Alan. They say, go patch your S. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the group was called Cyber Commandos on Twitter. Uh, they identified as a Muslim hacker team and took responsibility for the hack. The council site was hosted separately from the city government sites, which were not impacted by the breach, according to a spokesperson. Uh, and it's, and this, even the service provider was temporarily locked out of the website, so it took them a little <laughs> while to get the site restored back to normal. Just happens. Nothing a big, nothing, nothing all that unusual about it, but it does just happen. Um, yeah. Speaking of things that just happen, robot.txt files, those seem to just happen. Yeah. Uh, so this is an interesting article talking about how you can use a robots.txt file to collect intelligence about a website. Generally, what you, uh, robot.txt is there so that you uh, can apply some rules to Googlebot and Yahoobot and so on, uh, and the Bingbot, uh, to control which parts of your site they'll index. So it's very common to say, you know, disallow slash admin and slash stats and slash internal and so on to stop the bots from poking around in files they're not supposed to. 
But in doing so, you're advertising those URLs, right. being like, oh, there's something I don't want people to look at, and it's right, right here. Yeah, it's like, putting, it's like putting a map of all the places you don't want people to look. Don't check here. Yeah. Don't look and over really, here. Really, <laughs> if, if you don't want people going there, you should probably have you know, authentication or something so that you can't go there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and uh, did you see too that Apple is recently rolling out their own web crawler? So they're going out there and they're they're indexing the web, Bing and Google style, like everybody else is. So now Apple's got Apple has their own oh. search bot. You'll see it showing up in your web logs, the Apple Bot, and uh, they're they're indexing the web. Hmm? Yeah, I'm just gonna block it, not for business, but for my own site. Just like, <laughs> Sorry, no Apple search. <laughs> I don't know, Alan. Sometimes those iPhone users spend money. You might want them as customers. Uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, mobile, Google declares that mobile search has topped desktop search. They say more people now use Google search on mobile devices than they do on desktop. Although Comscore disagrees, but uh, Google stats, internal stats, say that uh, in the last quarter that mobile search outranked the desktop search. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, Google recently made its biggest algorithm change to date uh, recently to give sites that are more mobile-friendly higher preference in mobile search. And if your site isn't responsive, it's going to start getting lower results in the Google search. This would seem to indicate why Google was so hot to do that. Now, Comscore says that in March 2014, or I'm sorry, March 2015, their digital device traffic survey found that... Um, uh, over the past four years, um, digital media growth consumption has grown 394% and uh, 1,721% on tablets. But however, d- uh, they're still not eating into the desktop market share for search. Desktop has only grown 37% during this time, but mobile still only, according to Comscore, accounts for 29% of total search volume. So Google says it's more, Comscore says it's less. Either way, there seems to be a transition going on, either in sales, in growth, in consumption. It seems to be more and more average people are searching the web on their phone. Yeah. You know what? Google makes it easy to do that. They but build it in. Yes, so you- but at the same time, I don't normally do a search on my phone unless I'm not... At the computer. At a computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I- it's not like I'm supplanting my desktop to do my searching. No. It's like if I do a search on my phone, it's usually because I'm not at home and I need to find something quick. Maybe the use case um, is you're out doing something, you're on the go, you need to know a piece of information, you're in a conversation. Because, you know, it's just it's an okay yeah. Google away and then it fires the, up the and okay starts searching. The okay Google has worked quite well for me. I was in the laundry room in the basement and I was like, I don't know how to do just a spin cycle on this fancy washing machine. So I was <laughs> like, okay, Google, how do you do only a spin cycle on a Samsung washing machine? And the first result was the answer yeah. from Samsung. It's like, hold the button for five seconds, and it'll go bleep, bleep, bloop, and then now it's a spin cycle. Hmm. That's, so, and you know the other thing? But the, that was the other thing, though. When we were at the studio working on various things, like trying to look up motherboard model numbers and yeah. make stuff work, mm-hmm. watching Rakai do it all on his phone and be faster at it than JT <laughs> at a computer, yeah. I was like... My first reaction is like, why are you possibly doing that on your phone? Right. I would hate that. Yeah. Of course, I was still quite new to having a phone big enough and fast enough to actually do anything on. Yeah. Because this thing is a piece of crap. Yeah. Nexus 6 makes it a lot easier, a lot more real estate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, I was, I was quite surprised at how good Rikai was at it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I guess I had mostly just not bothered with it before. Uh, but, you know, I until this year in Japan, having the uh, the... 4G hotspot to be able to have internet everywhere in Japan, uh, I hadn't used my phone quite as much for directions and stuff before either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, I can see how easily you get spoiled by using your phone for many different things. And the other thing I'll say is I wonder if Google is counting false searches 
because I say, okay, Google, and like a bunch of phones just lit up. And a lot of times my watch lights up on accident and thinks I'm searching Google. And I look down and realize it's been like right now, it's, it's listening to this entire conversation and it's searching all, it's, it's, it's searching all of this. Every word uh, I say, see, it's Google oh, searching right now. Mine's not allowed to do that. It's configured that I have to unlock it and like click a thing and if I, I want it. I just got the craziest X, XKCD comic on my phone. I don't even, I don't even know what happened. Uh, it knows what you like. <laughs> Uh, this is what I look like right now. Oh, it's a it's a comic of what I look like right now. I see. Hmm. Well, there you go, Google. Thank you. Hey, we have a message from Penn State University's president on cybersecurity. What's this about, Alan? Uh, the Penn State has uh, disconnected one of their uh, research networks completely from the Internet after two sophisticated cyber attacks, apparently from the Chinese, compromised their network. Yeah, that's... So they've just completely disconnected those machines from the internet so and wait, their network. Can let, me, let me see if I got this right. So if I have a device that is important and I don't want somebody to hack it, I disconnect it from the internet? Well, oh. it was more... Um, I'm going to write a note to all those SCADA hacked, operators real they quick. They disconnected it so that they yeah, could... I know. Uh, I know analyze it and stuff and make yeah. sure it didn't spread. It's just uh, it's just yes. how frequently a lot of problems could be solved if you just took a system off the internet. It doesn't need to be yeah. on the internet, you know? Okay. Exactly. Uh, Hawaii, Oahu, Hawaii launches their 10 kilobit light OS right. to power the internet of things. A 10K OS, uh, just mm-hmm. 10 kilobits in size. The company says it's going to call it light OS, the lightest software of its kind, and can be used to power a range of smart devices from wearables to cars. They predict by 2025 there will be roughly 100 billion internet-connected devices in the world and 2 million new sensors deployed every hour. They say it's going to be open source, open to all. A light OS supports zero configuration, auto discovery, and auto networking. I don't know if it's based off of Linux or what. Can't be for uh, 100 it's, kilobytes. It's small. <laughs> yeah, 100 KB. It must be yeah. writing from scratch. <laughs> I don't know. So it's probably pretty limited. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, wow, Alan. Our next uh, story in the roundup is an html5sec.org slash keylogger URL. And I'm betting... Let's just try it. What happens if I enter something yeah. in here? So, so do you have you don't have Firebug or something installed probably though, do you? No, I don't. Uh, but basically, if you uh, open up this web page and type in your username and password, it's going to log the keys you press uh, in kind of a very interesting way. Uh, if you look at the source code quickly, you'll see what they have done is created a bunch of hidden links uh, for each letter of the alphabet. They didn't even bother with numbers. Uh, and set the access key to be the letter. So when you press A, it triggers going to slash slash evil.com ampersand A. And when you press Z, it goes to slash slash evil.com slash ampersand, or uh, question mark Z. Um, And so as you press the keys, it's making all these Ajax requests that are basically logging your key presses. Um, One thing I noticed, though, is if you press the same letter twice in a row, it only logs it once. Hmm. Uh, But it's interesting that, you know, uh, just pressing keys, uh, it, you know, there are multiple ways that you could uh, make that. Yeah, essentially uh, become a keylogger. Log remotely. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Hey, Alan. You know, sometimes those of us that have well, especially hard- uh, when you can inject HTML into another website. So, say you were an ad on, say, a website that has a login box. Hmm. Right. Yeah, uh, that, you could inject some code that would capture the key presses. I was, I mean, it doesn't even have to be an ad. You could, I mean, think about like all the yeah. WordPress websites well, that have taken over. But no, yeah, mm. but ad was, the reason I did an ad is because you could inject it on somebody else's website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did or you hear, a lot of web. 
did you hear about our next story in the route of hackers draining bank accounts via the Starbucks app? I guess maybe you pre-charge it with <laughs> yeah. some funds and then they have well, it. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if you... Well, if you're draining your bank account, it's probably not the type where you pre-charge it. Oh, and PayPal accounts, uh, right? The link to the actual accounts. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Criminals are siphoning money away from the victims. They break into the victim's Starbucks account online, add a new gift card, or transfer funds over and repeat the process every time the original card gets reloaded. Uh, that seems pretty straightforward. So basically, they just have to. I like all you have to figure out to become a hacker these days, kids. All you have to do is just figure out somebody's password, and now you're a hacker. And you just log into a website, and you add funds and remove funds. Makes you a hacker. Uh, so uh, Starbucks has acknowledged this, and they say it's they have records going back as early as December that it's been happening to people. Someone in Texas. Uh, so it's been going on for a while. It looks like Alan. And, jeez, mm-hmm. people, set a good freaking password, especially if you have an account that has money on it. All right, our last story in the roundup comes from Mr. Brian Krebs. The St. Louis Federal Reserve suffered a DNS breach. Yeah, so uh, the attackers were able to hijack the domain and point it at different DNS servers and return the wrong results. So anybody trying to access their domain would get the wrong IP address. Uh, apparently, this uh, caused people to be able to take over a bunch of... Mm. Different things, including the web pages for Fred, Fraser, GoFred, GeoFred, and Geofred. Alfred. Alfred. These must be all different like sites that they run, I guess. I yeah, don't know. So <laughs> Fred is the Federal Reserve oh, Economic okay. Data Database. Oh, okay. Uh, Fraser is the Federal Reserve Archival System for Economic Research. Uh, GeoFred allows authorized users to create, customize, and share geographical map data based on Fred. And Alfred is the archival Federal Reserve Economic Data, which allows users to retrieve vintage versions of economic data that were available on specific dates in history. So every report they publish is archived so that you can go back and do research on, you know, stuff that happened 10 years ago or also stuff that happened today. Huh. 10 years in the future. So people so. are maybe going to check these records out and they're getting redirected to a bogus website that maybe is full of vulnerabilities or malware or what? Yeah. Uh, now, you know, if this happened to a different part of the Federal Reserve to so an API that's like bank uses or something, you yeah. could have probably done a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they say, the advisor noted that it is common with these kinds of DNS attacks. Users uh, who were redirected to one of these phony websites may have unknowingly exposed to vulnerabilities. So yeah, the website they redirected them to could have had, you know, a flash uh, malware or Java thingy or right. otherwise trick people into well, downloading and stuff and running stuff. Uh, Krebs points out that Fred site, uh, so one, the one example the Fred site has a database maintained by the Research Division of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. It has more than 247,000 economic time series from 79 different sources. You get the data in graphical form, text form. It can be downloaded or imported into a spreadsheet. They cover banking, business, fiscal, consumer price indexes, employment, population, exchange rates, gross domestic product, interest rates, monetary aggregations, producer price indexes, reserves, monetary base, all of that. And U.S. trade international transactions are in that database. So that's a serious database. It's decent enough. I love the comment thread. Uh, so somebody's like, so this doesn't affect me? Good. And then somebody's reply is, look in your wallet at a $20 bill. And the next reply is, I see Queen Elizabeth. And I was like, ah, good Canadian. <laughs> yeah, whatever, Canadians, whatever. I hate it. <laughs> Money and it's... Well, Alan, uh, yeah. that is... I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I, you, you, what, what are they supposed to do? Because they're not, they probably don't even control their own DNS. They can't. Ha- the, the people that operate the websites have no control over how the DNS management people are patching their infrastructure. Right. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. Yeah, it might, it, it might, it might not be the case, but you just kind of feel bad for them when you can do all your your best effort and then still DNS gets hijacked and users go to the wrong site. 
can even happen to the Federal Reserve. The question is, why, why do those sub sites from the Federal Reserve not use HTTPS to prove their identity? And then it would have been immediately obvious uh, by someone that was going to the hijacked version mm -hmm. that, hey, they don't have the SSL certificate, and my browser has the HSTS header that says this site will always have SSL. So... That uh, is a really good this. point. That would have that, and it seems like we should just have that for government websites. Yep. Like that seems like but a also, thing. Also, you know, people should take care of their domain registrar accounts and their DNS and not get DNS hijacked in the first place. And uh, they should, know, especially after we saw it happening to uh, Twitter and so on. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the government should pay network solutions for their ridiculously priced thing, where they'll phone you to verify every time you make a change. Yeah, it only costs two thousand dollars a year per domain. <laughs> <laughs> they should sponsor. That was a good pitch you just did there, Alan. <laughs> oh, that was my sarcastic voice. I know, I know. Uh, all right, is there anything else we've got to cover in this week's episode of the TechSnap nope, program? No, we are all done. Boom, that ends a double recording session for us. We will be back live next week at 1 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. There you go. JVLive.info for the audio only. RSS feeds to get the on-demand version automatically when we release a new version. And uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar if you'd like to know when we're going to do another double or just when we're live. The other nice thing about the calendar page is it automatically converts all of the listings to your local time zone. We have robots to do yes. that for you. Oh, speaking of things that happen automatically for you, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Send us in a fo feedback form, and then automatically we'll read it and answer it. It's sort of like a magic IT question service on demand. I wish I, I, wish I had is. something like that when I was doing that stuff. That would have been killer. Yeah. You know? You know, when I was first starting with ZFS, I didn't have anyone I could send my questions I know. to find answers. I had, I had to just lose files the old hard, hard way and just, you know what? Well, I never lost any files, but I had to like, Well, you, you didn't know. use RiserFS. Well, no. <laughs> no Nobody told me not to. And he seemed like such a nice guy. I just don't know what went wrong. All right. Well, that'll bring us to the end. Uh, thank you for watching, and uh, be sure to grab those feeds. Like I was mentioning, that way you get us automatically. We love comments and reviews in iTunes. We like to ask you maybe focus on the MP3 feed. That way everybody sees it there, and it helps people find the show. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week. See you right back here next week. <laughs>